to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Let me just recall for you the background against which this 11th chapter of Hebrews is written. The great need, of course, of the Hebrew Christians to whom the apostle is writing was Christian perseverance in the midst of all kinds of difficult and discouraging circumstances in which they were being called to live for God. These people were under many kinds of pressure, often of a very severe sort, and the evidences of that are very clear. You'll notice, for example, in the next chapter, in chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13, Uh, in the exhortation about chastening and the disciplines of the Lord which they have been experiencing. He encourages them in chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands. Now here is a great picture of somebody who is discouraged and depressed. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. When somebody is depressed like this, you can almost see it. The Bible has got a great genius for describing this kind of condition, you know. The man, for example, in the Psalms, who constantly speaks of God in terms of the one who lifts up his head. Thou art my glory and the lifter up of my head. Now, what happens when a man is in the midst of depression is that his head slouches down. You can almost see it. Now, God is spoken of as the one who lifts up his head. His hands hang down, you know. This sense almost of a physical collapse, which is a mirror of the spiritual and and emotional collapse that is going on. The weak knees, and we still speak about this, you know, our knees becoming weak. The lame walk, the sense of stumbling. And this is the kind of condition in which these people were and to which the apostle addresses himself. Not only so, but do you notice further on in chapter 12, there is the danger of a spirit of bitterness coming in. In verse 15, see to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it the many become defiled. Now that, of course, is the kind of thing that can so easily happen in a situation of pressure and trial and tribulation and distress, not only the sense of depression, the hands hanging down, the feeble knees, the sense of lameness, the spirit of distress, but also a sense of bitterness beginning to creep in. You must have noticed how this kind of thing can happen, how the tendency even begins, just the hint of it, a sense of perhaps cynicism at the beginning, detachment, and then a spirit of resentment which soon becomes bitterness. And it all begins with this kind of distress and uh, discouragement and tribulation. Now, the great question, you see, is this. These people were in great need of perseverance. And so the apostle says to them in chapter 10, you have need of endurance at verse 36. Do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. You have need of endurance. Now, the real question is, what is it that enables people to persevere in spiritual warfare under such conditions? 
What enables people to run the race with perseverance in such conditions as these? Because these were the conditions in which these believers were living. And the answer that this apostle gives is faith. Look at verse 35 of chapter 10 again. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one shall come and shall not tarry. But my righteous one shall live by faith. The way you go on living in such circumstances is by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Now, what is the alternative to shrinking back? It is believing and going on, but of those who have faith and keep their souls. Well, now, the bulk of this 11th chapter is not just a picture gallery of faith. We often speak about this, that that this 11th chapter of Hebrews is a picture gallery, God's picture gallery of men of faith. But it is much more than that. You see, it is primarily a series of biblical illustrations of faith working under fire. That's why he chooses these particular instances. It is faith under fire that he's speaking about. Not just faith in a general sense, but faith in a specific sense. Faith under pressure. And so Campbell Morgan has entitled a book that he wrote many years ago on this chapter, The Triumphs of Faith. And it is the triumphs of faith over all kind of kinds of opposition that he is illustrating here. What he is saying is look at these men of God in Scripture. Because what they were tending to say, you see, was it is impossible in circumstances like ours to go on is impossible the only thing to do is to go back and they were in danger of this very thing as we have found again and again but what he is saying to them is your situation whatever it is now we need to apply this beloved to ourselves your situation whatever your situation is is not the impossible context for a believer to live in that you think it is God knows there are many of us, and many of us here this evening, who have at times begun to wither spiritually and to wonder, can faith flourish in a situation like this? How can we go on any longer in a situation like this? Do you see, the mystery is that it is precisely in circumstances like these that faith flourishes. That's where God creates faith. And when he is making men of faith like Abraham, he does it in the context of trial. That's the significance of this. Look at verse 33 and onwards. Verse 32, a great encouragement, you know, to long-winded preachers. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. You see, he has got to the point, he had actually 17 illustrations, but he has only had time for 11 of them. And so he says, now I'll just give you the headings as we finish now, he says. No time for the rest. Perhaps he didn't have one of these television fellows doing his five, four, three. Did you see that? 
Did you see that? And then when I was nearly at the end, he did this. Well, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews maybe knew something. He says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. But look at these men. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, one strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment, stones sawn asunder, killed with the sword. They went about in skins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering over deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. That was the characteristic of these men, you see. And it is precisely here, he says, that faith, faith flourishes in this context. That's how God creates believing men, men like Abraham. Now, the supreme example of faith flourishing in the fires of testing in Scripture is, of course, Abraham himself, who is, in one sense, the prototype of the man of faith. That is, he is the example of the man of faith. In another sense, he is the progenitor of all men of faith because he is our father. Those who believe who are men and women of faith today are children of Abraham who is the father of the faithful. So he is an example of faith but in this other sense he is the father of the faithful. Now before we look a little more closely at Abraham's faith as he expounds it to us we need to understand as much as we can what biblical faith really is. I think Jock was saying last uh, Wednesday evening that these uh, introductory verses uh, to chapter 11 are not so much a definition of faith as a description of it. And that was a very accurate uh, way to, to speak of it because it is a description of faith. How the Bible defines faith for us is rather in these terms, the Old Testament words for faith or trust, and frequently it is trust, faith, various other forms in which the word appears. They have the idea of leaning upon, sometimes of rolling upon, as you roll a burden onto someone, or of casting yourself upon someone. That is, allowing them to take all the weight of the burden, resting one's weight upon someone else or something else. Now, it's in this sense that the shorter catechism gives us the perfect answer to the question, what is faith? You know, question 86 in the shorter catechism, of course. What is faith in Jesus Christ? And faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. 
Now that is saving faith. That is how men are saved. By receiving and resting upon him for loan for salvation. But that is how the Christian life is lived, you see. The whole of our life is a life of faith. Resting upon him alone for salvation. And this is what faith does. It rests wholly upon God and all that God is for our life in this world. And that really is what Abraham supremely illustrates. He rested on God's absolute faithfulness in his promises. That's why you find several times over here the promises of God spoken of. In verse 9, for example, by, so by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. He rested on God's absolute faithfulness in his promises. And he rested on God's absolute power in his person. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Now these two verses together, verse 11 and verse 19, give us the two great foundation stones on which Abraham lived. Of, in one case it is said of Sarah and in the other of Abraham. She considered, verse 11, she considered him faithful who had promised. That means that she took God's word with absolute seriousness. And that's what faith meant for Abraham, you see. God spoke to him. God gave him promises. God covenanted with him. And Abraham and Sarah considered that God was faithful. That is, they, they considered that God meant every syllable of what he said. Now, it is a strange thing that the perversity of the human heart is such that because we recognize in ourselves, and God help us in one another too, do we not, that we fail to mean everything that we say. So that sometimes we have to ask people, do you really mean that? Somebody says something that we think is perhaps rather outlandish and we say, now do you really mean that? Or perhaps we say when they've gone, I wonder if they really meant that. Sometimes we do speak carelessly, but you know what Abraham and Sarah rested their life on. And this became the ground on which they lived was that God never has uttered from all eternity, a word that he did not mean. And so they rested on God's promises. Abraham sojourned in the land of promises, and Sarah considered him faithful, who had promised. 
Now, the promises of God to Abraham and to Sarah came, of course, directly by direct revelation. And God spoke to Abraham and addressed him in a particular way and spoke to him about his future. The promises of God come to us equally from God, but now through God's word written in Holy Scripture. And this is where we rest our confidence, and we shall see in a moment that that is not just a matter of some academic conviction. It is a matter of the whole of the life that we are going to live in this world. And one of the great issues that faces us as it faced Abraham in our of the Chaldees was, are we ready to take God and his word seriously? Is my whole thinking formed and molded by what God has written and God has said, to which God has subscribed his oath? Is that how my life is shaped and the whole of my thinking about this world and the next, about my life and about God and about his church and about everything else, is it shaped and molded and built and founded upon God's words? Now, that is an immensely important thing. The authority of God's word, you see, for Abraham was not merely an academic matter. It has a lot of academic implications which we need to think about and be honest about. And I am always urging theological students that they need to think these things through with great care. But ultimately, my dear friends, the authority of God's word is not an intellectual or an academic issue. It is an issue of the most vast proportions of a moral and spiritual nature which determines the whole course of our life. And for Abraham, that was certainly true as he rested on God's Word. And he rested on God's absolute and unlimited resources, putting no limits to the length to which he was ready to go in trusting God. He considered that God was able, verse 19, to raise men even from the dead. Now these were the two foundation stones, I say, in which Abraham built his life. That was how he launched out into the future on that day in Genesis 12 when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, Get thee up out of thy land from thy father's house and from thy kindred and go into a land that I will show thee. And he went resting on God's word and God's power. Now, that faith has implications and the life of Abraham spells these out for us in these verses. First of all, this faith produced an active obedience in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, obeyed. And he went, not knowing whether 
was to go. Now that call in verse 8 refers, of course, to God's summons to Abraham, described in Genesis 12, to leave her of the Chaldees to go into a land that God would show him. And of course that was the first great test that Abraham's faith received. And it was a test, first of all, because of what he was leaving. I wonder if you know much about Ur of the Chaldees, because the archaeologists have excavated a great deal of the area around Ur and have revealed something of the remarkable civilization that was Ur of the Chaldees approximately in Abraham's time. It was certainly no primitive world. And the archaeological excavation has revealed some remarkable evidences of a sophisticated, civilized, cultured society with all kinds of uh, standards of living which we would never have expected in a situation like that. Balconied houses, luxurious bathrooms, out of the Chaldees seems to have had it all. A cultured, artistic society, so that you must not think of Abraham as some primitive kind of peasant coming out of a primitive kind of society because he clearly came from a most cultivated and sophisticated society. And what God said to him in that high civilization from which he came was, go from your own country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And God began to speak to him about the fact that there was something more in the call of God for Abraham than mere material security and physical comfort. And God began to unsettle his heart. God began to disturb him in that comfortable society in which he lived and to draw something out of Abraham's heart which was like yearning for another world. And it was because God had set eternity in the heart of this man. And he began to call him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham's obedience meant such a consecration of himself to God that he was ready to leave all the security and all the comfort of that world behind him. Get thee up, God said to him. You know, whenever the call of God sounds in a man's soul, it implies that kind of consecration. There is no faith, beloved, without consecration to God. We often think that the beginnings of spiritual experience are a believing which has nothing to do with consecration. And people will say, I believed and then I consecrated myself later. But true faith, involves this kind of consecration. It is a call to leave everything for God. That basically is what the New Testament means by repenting and believing. 
And Abraham knew something of it. And it came as a real test to him. He had to count the cost of obeying God. But faith involved that. It was a testing experience because of what he was leaving. And it was testing also because of where he was going. It was simply, God said in verse 8, a land that I will show you. And therefore he went out to lead the life of a kind of wandering gypsy, if you like, not knowing where it was that God was going to lead him to. So that his faith in God's word and his confidence in God's sufficiency was severely tested right at the beginning of his pilgrimage. And he obeyed, you see, because he took God at his word. And that was the great first crossroads of Abraham's life. He had many others. As we discovered when we were going through Abraham's life in our study of Genesis, he had many other crossroads in his life. Almost all of them were like this. They were crossroads implying, and these are the crossroads that we have in our spiritual experience. And don't let's imagine that once we have one kind of crossroads like this, that's it finished. You have all kinds of occasions where God suddenly meets you as he met Abraham at all different stages of his spiritual life. And the crossroads was really this. He was faced with God's word and with all God's lavish promises and all God's endless resources. And he could either heed it and obey it or resist it and refuse it. And that's what the crossroads always is in our life when God comes and speaks to us as he spoke to Abraham. He heard God speak. He believed God. And he did what he was told. Now you can see why faith and obedience are so closely linked together, can't you, in Scripture? Why do we disobey God? Why is it that we resist his word and disobey him instead of yielding to it and obeying him? Well, is it not because we do not trust him to know best? Isn't that why we disobey, basically? Because we think that we have a better plan than God's plan. That we have a confidence in other resources than in God's. Isn't that what disobedience basically springs from? We are really saying, now, there is another plan other than God's plan that I have, and I am ready to confide in that. I am ready to put my confidence in my own wisdom or in somebody else's wisdom rather than God's. That's why trusting and obeying are married together in Scripture into the obedience of faith. And when you analyze it, this is precisely what causes our disobedience. It is always a lack of faith in the sense that I am ready to take God at his word and launch out on that basis. You see, there is a, a great cost about a life like Abraham's, where he was ready to turn his back on worldly wisdom of all kinds, 
Now, worldly wisdom would have said to Abraham, don't you be a stupid fool. You stay in Ur of the Chaldees. What man in his senses would go out into the unknown like that? But you see, Abraham recognized that it was better to go out into the unfamiliar with God than to stay in the familiar without him. And it always is. And the simple answer Abraham would have given to people as he was going out from Ur of the Chaldees if they had said, what is it that's possessing you? He would have said, well, I simply believe that God knows best. And I've heard his word. And I'm living my life on the basis of trusting him. Now, you know, it's, I say it's costly. It is a very costly thing. That's a very costly way to live. And, and one can never run away from this. But, you know, it's also very much more simple. You ever thought about that? When life gets really complicated. Now, I don't mean that life, life is simplistic for the Christian. But when life gets really complicated is when, like Abraham did, and thank God he has told us all about Abraham's failures and his weaknesses when he turned and went off down to Egypt and decided he knew better than God how to sort out the famine problem. He said, I'll go down to Egypt. Come, Sarah, he said. And then when he got there, he discovered there's a crisis here. They're going to take me and kill me so that they may have you. They will see you're a beautiful woman. So he said, I know how we'll do this now. And he ignored God's word again. And he said, I can see a way out of this, Sarah, he said. Say you're my sister. You're not, you're my wife, but say you're my sister. It's a sort of half lie, of course, but just let's say you're my sister. One thing led to another, and life got hugely complicated for Abraham. And you know, for the man who is ready to take God simply at his word, to put God unreservedly and utterly first, to believe him, to trust his resources and his wisdom, to live his life utterly on his word. Then what the hymn writer says, what is it then our lives would be more simple if we took him at his word. There is a simplicity, I say again. doesn't mean easy, let me say, but it does mean that we avoid all the complications that disobedience brings. I suppose one of the things that I most frequently am burdened about is the complications that come into people's lives because of disobedience. Somebody phoned me after the uh, television broadcast and before I got my little device onto the phone which said, uh, this is a recorded message, please phone Jock Robertson. <laughs> Poor Jock. But uh, somebody phoned me and um, they came from the north of England and told me a most astonishing story. Christian man who had once been a fruitful leader of a Bible class as I gather 
told me an astonishing story of deceit and lying and intrigue which had got him involved in the most awful mess and chaos. And you know, I thought as I came away from the phone, oh, the complications that sin brings into our lives. Now, there's probably not one of us who doesn't know that from experience as Abraham knew it when he went down into Egypt. Faith produced obedience in Abraham and really growing in faith is just learning to do what you're told. Isn't it? I was... um, in a shop a little while ago um, and there was a woman getting very irate with a little child and she screamed from one end of the shop to the other when will you learn to do what you're told and I think sometimes that is God's problem above all other things with us. Faith produces active obedience. Faith produces also a pilgrim spirit. You notice that in verses 9 and 10. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise, for he looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And he develops this a little from verse 13, do you notice? These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus that is, people who speak with the language of Abraham and the language of faith, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, we have noticed this characteristic of the epistle to the Hebrews several times over, haven't we? That there is, there is something that God does for the believer in terms of creating a heavenly mindedness in him, which is a vital element in passing through trial. He creates the kind of spirit which has a detachment from this world and lives lightly to all the things that matter to people in this world. Have you ever thought, listening to all these election broadcasts, I get home rather late in the evening usually and I find I am bombarded by these election broadcasts where the things that matter to people in our nation come out so obviously. What matters to people? It's all the material advantages that can be offered by people. Promises, promises, promises. Somebody said at tea time tonight, 
in one of the broadcasts. Promises from this one. Promises from that one. And then they were going to say, but we are the people who are going to promise and deliver. The characteristic thing about them all is that it's all promises. It's all promises. But you know the thing that Abraham and those who speak his language were characterized by was that God had brought them into a land of promises. And they lived with their eye on the fulfillment of these promises because they knew that the promises of God were the reality. That God was building for them a city that had foundations. That God was preparing for them a country. And that was their true homeland. They seek a homeland. They were saying, we do not really belong here. So that it doesn't matter in a sense what the world does to us. Our abiding city is the heavenly Jerusalem. Now you know that is why Martin Luther writes that great hymn that we don't sing often enough anyway. A safe, stronghold our God is still. The real security of the believer, he says, is though they take our life, goods, children, honor, wife, the city of God remaineth. That's the one thing they cannot take. And that's why these men of faith who speak this language were able to go through the world triumphantly. They might be pillaged and tortured. They might find that they were brought even to death. But even then, no man could take from them their true riches. Because their true riches were in another world, you see. Where neither moth nor rust corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. That's where their riches were. So they lived the life of pilgrims. Such men as Abraham acknowledge that, you see. They are passing through this world. They live as those who do not have their real homeland here. They are pilgrims, not tramps, you notice. Because the thing that marks out the pilgrim from the tramp is that the tramp doesn't know where he's going. In fact, he's not going anywhere in particular. You ask one of these tramps who used to wander around Dershire, we used to get them when I was cutting the hedge once a year. They used to come round the back. We had a parkland, you know, in our garden. I used to be cutting the hedge. It was an area where the tramps came over the hills and they used to come down and ask for a cup of tea or something. And I used to sit and chat with them. Men of remarkable color. And uh, I remember saying to one of them, where are you going? Oh, anywhere, he said. I don't know. And he actually asked me to make suggestions. He said, where do you think? He, said, he wasn't going anywhere. Now, a tramp, you see, is wandering around. He has no continuing city here, but that's not the pilgrim. The pilgrim has his eyes on a city. He is going somewhere. He knows where his home is. He knows where he is making for. And his true life is there, hid with Christ in God. And nothing can touch that. And that's the experience of the man of faith, seeking a homeland. Do you know something about the homelessness of the spirit 
of the man of faith who is able truly to say this world is not my home I'm only passing through that's the deepest thing about his life he is passing through because a dimension of eternity has touched his soul and another world has invaded his heart and claimed him for God and the world to come And that incidentally is why you will never find anything more miserable in this world than the believer who is trying to find his or her ultimate satisfaction in this world and in all the things that this world employ, employs to satisfy people. You will find that the believer who has not set his heart on heaven is going to find that he's really very miserable in this world. Because you see, when grace has invaded your soul and heaven has in some measure come down from above to meet you and to touch you, then God has spoiled you for everything less. Isn't that why you find that you really come into your own as a believer when you're caught up in worship? When God comes and your whole being is just dancing within you with glory and you sometimes can imagine, Lord, is this heaven? And you're really yourself there. That's where you belong and you say, Lord, this is home. They seek a homeland. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. But it's not all in the world beyond. There is a glory here in this world to be tasted by those who trust him. Just look on with me at verses 11 and 12, will you? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, that is, he was so old that nobody would have imagined God would have given him a child far less such vast progeny were born from him descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Faith then produced a life for Abraham of incredible fruitfulness. This kind of life, this life of resting on God and all that God was and living for him and obeying him and having his heart set upon God and upon heaven, it produced here in this world a life of incredible fruitfulness. That was true inwardly and personally, and it's amazing, isn't it? Keep on saying to yourself, it was Abraham, the man who disobeyed God and ran away down into Egypt. It was Abraham, the man who had so many weaknesses in his character, out of whom God made this kind of man. 
And after Lot's choice, do you remember when Lot said he would choose the land that lay towards Sodom and Gomorrah? God said to him, Abraham, look, he said, it's not all pie in the sky when you die. You know, although it's rather important to know whether there's pie in the sky or not. But it's not all that, said God to Abraham. He said, lift up your eyes and look and all this land, all this land, it's all yours, he said. Look to the north and the south and the east and the west. It's all yours. But even deeper than that, it was what Abraham became. A friend of God, a man of God, a man who became influential with God. Influential with God. If you really set your heart on that, is that the kind of influence that really matters to you? But it was true also outwardly and historically. He became a man of destiny for succeeding generations. From him were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You see what God was doing in this man. He was not just doing for himself or for his own generation. He was doing it for succeeding generations. My dear Christian brothers and sisters, do you ever think of this in the life that you are living in the way that God is dealing with you and you are responding to him? It's not just for yourself. Oh, that God would give us a sense of history. We are making generations to come by the kind of lives we are living, by the quality of our consecration. God made him fruitful for generations to come after him. And lastly, and in a word, it produced a trust in God. This life of faith which knew no limits. There were no bounds that Abraham ever set to the lengths he would go for God. Have you got that clear in your own spirit? What, a, what an important thing it is to be clear about. Because the time came, you see, when uh, Abraham's faith was tried in its supreme moment in verse 17 when God tested him and he offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your descendants be named. And even although Abraham didn't understand, there was just no, no understanding this, the promise had come through Isaac in Isaac, not, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And yet God said, take him to the mountain. And Abraham Abraham's faith had grown. Faith is not a static thing, you see. It grows. The Bible speaks about little faith and about great faith. And the disciples pray, Lord, increase our faith. And faith grows by feeding on the promises of God. That's how faith grows. By feeding on God's promises. By proving God's character. And Abraham had proved it. And in the ultimate trial, Abraham believed God and put no limits around the extent to which his obedience would go. Now that's really what I want to go away with this evening because these people were passing through trial and suffering and tribulation 
which was making them say, well, now, we have followed far enough, but we need to put a limit here. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, to put limits and borders around the extent to which we are ready to trust God. And Abraham said there are no bounds, no limits. What he says we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Never fear. Only trust and obey. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.